Amen. All right, we're there in Philippians chapter number one. And of course, this morning we are beginning a brand new sermon series entitled Rejoice. And it's really a Bible study. It's a verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. We're going to spend the next several months, uh, really through the summer, uh, looking at this small book of Philippians. The book of Philippians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. It's only four chapters, but there's so much in this book um, that we're going to take our time and go through it, uh, and we're going to look at every truth that we can possibly learn from this uh, book. And I'm glad you're here this morning. The The best time to be in church, really every Sunday is good to be in church, but the best time to be in church is right at the beginning of a new sermon series or a new Bible study, because you get to start right with us, and I want to encourage you to be faithful to church over the summer. I realize that you uh, need to take vacations and things like that, and and, and I appreciate that. And uh, But if you are able to, I'd encourage you to stick with us as we study the book of Philippians. It'd be good if you could be here for every service uh, in the book of Philippians and study and learn the book of Philippians with us. We're going to look at a portion of chapter 1 this morning, and it will just begin here in verse number 1. And the Bible says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Now I want you to notice, we're going to come back to verses uh, 1 through 3 here in a minute. But here in verse 4 it says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all. I want you to notice the next few words. It says, making request with joy. Making request with joy. And I want you to notice the word joy there. This is the first time the word joy is mentioned in the book of Philippians, pretty early into the book, only four verses into the book of Philippians. But it's not the last time that the book of joy is mentioned in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians really is a book of joy. Uh, It is a book of joy, and I would say this, it is a book of Jesus. And what it is, it's actually about the joy that can be found in Jesus. And we're going to notice that. I want you to make note of the fact as we begin our study in Philippians that the word joy and rejoice, the series is called Rejoice because this is a word that is emphasized Throughout this book, uh, notice there in, uh, you're, you're there in Philippians chapter 1, skip down to verse number 25, just real quickly. We're going to go through the whole chapter, but just by way of introduction, notice verse 25. It says, and having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for the furtherance, notice the words, and joy of faith. The word joy appears in this book six times. It's only four chapters long, but in those four chapters, the Apostle Paul uses the word joy six different times. However, there's another word that is similar that is used throughout this book as well. Look down at verse number 18, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18. The Bible says this, what then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. Notice these words, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Not only is the word joy found six times in these four chapters, but the word rejoice appears ten times in the book of 
Philippians. The book of Philippians is four chapters long, and yet six different times the Apostle Paul brings up this idea of joy, and ten times he brings up this idea of rejoice. Here in Philippians 1.18, he says, he says, I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. I'd like you to flip over just real quickly, just by way of introduction, and look over at uh, chapter number three. I'm not going to show you all ten references to rejoice. We'll walk through the book over the next several weeks and months, but I'd like you to notice chapter three and verse one. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. If you flip over to uh, uh, chapter 4 and look at verse 4, we have probably the most famous reference to rejoicing in the book of Philippians and in maybe the whole Bible. We just sang a song that was based off of this verse, Philippians 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. This book is really a book of joy. It's a book of learning uh, to find joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word joy is defined as the emotion of great delight or happiness. Joy is the feeling of joy, satisfaction, happiness, unity. These are all things that the Apostle Paul brings up in this book. And then rejoice means to show joy, to show happiness, to show delight. In this book, as we begin this study, I want you to understand the context. It's about learning to have joy in your life. I don't know if you pay attention to the news, but this is a world that we live in that is very, uh, a very unhappy world. It's a very unjoyful world. It's a world with a lot of chaos and a lot of hurt. But the Bible says that we can find joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a book of joy. It's a book of Jesus. It's a book of the joy that can be found in Jesus. Now, you may be here this morning. You say, well, pastor, you don't know me and you don't know what I'm going through. And if you knew what I was going through, you would understand why I look the way I look. You know, maybe rejoice is not really a word that could be applied to you. Your face has not learned to show joy yet. And you would say, you would understand my attitude. You would understand my spirit. You would understand my uh, 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 lack of joy if you understood the circumstances I'm in. What's interesting to me is that the Apostle Paul writes this very positive book. And look, if you've studied the epistle of the Apostle Paul, you know that uh, some, of his book, some of his writings are, are pretty negative. When he writes the book to the church at Corinth, he's correcting them um, for all sorts of sin they've allowed into the church. When he writes the book, uh, the book of Galatians to the church in Galatia, he is talking to them about the heresy that they've fallen for, and he begins by talking about who hath bewitched you and, 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 and doubting the fact that they're even saved. But when Paul begins the book of Philippians, he begins with this idea of joy, and all through the book, he writes about joy. Here's the interesting thing that I want you to understand. When Paul penned the book of Philippians, he penned it in a prison cell. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 18. Notice, uh, excuse me, uh, chapter 1 and verse 7. Philippians 1 and verse 7, notice what he says. He says, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, and as much as both, notice these words, in my bonds. The word bond is something that binds you, something that fastens you, something that confines you, something that holds you together. I want you to notice, and we'll see it as we move through the book. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from prison. And what we learn is that joy in Jesus can be realized even in the worst of circumstances. 
Joy in Christ is not based off our circumstances. It's not based off what we're going through. It is based upon the one that we find our joy from. And this book really is a book to teach us how to rejoice. Now we're going to spend the next several months dissecting this amazing book of the Bible. But for today, what I'd like for us to do is to take a close look at the first 11 verses of this chapter. And I'd like you to notice, and I want to encourage you to take some notes, especially you're here as we begin this new Bible study. If you start taking notes now, at the end of this sermon series, you'll have handwritten notes through the entire book of Philippians. You can type it up and sell it as a commentary or something, I don't know. But you can have it for yourself as a personal study of the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at and we're going to dissect the first 11 verses together this morning. And what I want you to notice, and if you'd like to take notes on the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to write down some notes. And I would encourage some of you, maybe just go buy a dollar, a 99 cent notebook and, you know, grab one of our free Verity Baptist Church pens and just have a notebook full of notes from the book of Philippians over the next several weeks for you. It'll help you as you uh, study this idea. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, I'd like you to notice that we have three sets of three. There are three threes that the Apostle Paul mentions in the first 11 verses, and I want to point this out to you, and we'll move through them as quickly as we can. The first one will be uh, fairly quick, and it is the, the, the three pairs of partners. In the introductory statements of this book, and we'll move through it quickly, we see three pairs of partners. Notice verse 1, Paul says, Paul and Timotheus. That's our first pair of partners there. He says, Paul and Timotheus, the servant of Jesus Christ. And I don't want to take too much time on this. We've got other stuff I'd like to cover this morning. But I want you to notice that we have Paul and Timotheus there. We've got the mentor and the mentored. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, you don't have to turn there. The Bible says this, And these things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You know, the Bible teaches that we all need uh, uh, people that are investing into us spiritually, and we also eventually need to be investing into others spiritually. We have this relationship we see here with Paul and Timothy, not only Paul and Timothy, but Paul and Titus, and Paul and Philemon, and Paul and all sorts of different men. The Bible tells us in the book of Titus that the aged women, uh, women should teach the younger women how to love their husbands and love their children and be keepers at home. The Bible teaches this idea that we are to be investing in others and having others invest into us. I would uh, uh, put it this way, or I've heard it, heard it put this way. Every Paul needs a Timothy and every Timothy needs a Paul. We have these, this mentor and this mentor. And the question I have for you this morning is this. Who's your Paul? Who's your Paul? Is there anybody in your life, is there anybody in your life that you have allowed... Is there anybody in your life that you have looked to, maybe somebody that's older physically, maybe someone that's older spiritually, maybe somebody that's older uh, uh, in the faith or just further along in life? Is there anybody that you've attached yourself to and said, hey, I, I, just want, I just want to learn a little bit. I just want to have somebody in my life. You say, well, I don't have anybody in my life that I'm kind of looking for. You men, you say, I don't have any uh, man in, 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 in my life that's maybe further along that I'm kind of looking for or looking to uh, and get advice from uh, uh, in regards to how to have a good marriage and how to be a good father. And the question I would have for you, if you don't, why not? 
I mean, do you think you do you think you're infallible? You think, oh, I just got this all figured out. Look, we were not created to live on an island by ourselves. You need every man in this room, every lady in this room needs somebody who's a little further ahead of them that they can look for for some advice. You need a Paul. I mean, I have Pauls in my life. My wife and I specifically look for people who have been in the ministry maybe further than we have or more successful than we have, who have maybe raised uh, their children and their children are grown and they're adult and they're serving the Lord. We've looked towards people and said, that's the result we want in life. Let's look at those people. Why reinvent the wheel? Find a Paul. Say, well, where can I find a Paul? Oh, well, that's why God gave you a local New Testament church. Amen. God gave you a church that you could be around some people that are heading in the same direction you're heading, that are going the same direction you'd like to go, that are raising their children and having marriages and having careers and having success, that you'd like to have success. And look, you stick around church long enough, someone will come up alongside you and put their arm around you and say, let's walk through life together. Every Everybody needs a Paul. But let me just say this, once you've been here for a while, once you've matured a little bit, once we've helped you with your marriage and helped you with your children and helped you with your uh, maturity and helped you with your career. Don't you uh, forget, Timothy, to find a Timothy. Amen. Every Paul needs a Timothy, and every Timothy needs a Paul. And Paul here begins, we see this first pair. He says, Paul and Timotheus, the servant of Jesus Christ. He said, and the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. But I want you to notice, secondly, not only do we see the pair of Paul and Timothy, but we see another pair here in verse 1. He says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Not only do we see Paul the mentor and Timothy the mentor, but we see the bishop or the overseer and we see the deacons or the servants. Notice that there is a spiritual leadership authority structure within the church, and the Apostle Paul acknowledges uh, the bishops and the deacons. And this is, by the way, this is a good place to start when it comes to trying to find somebody to help you and coach you and counsel you in life. Then I want you to notice in verse 2, we see our third pair. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. We have God the Father and we have the Lord Jesus Christ. We have God the Father, and we have God the Son. It's interesting because right just a little while ago when I said, hey, some of you men need to find somebody to follow, get yourself under the authority of somebody, you say, well, who should I get under the authority of? Well, God gave you a church. God gave you a pastor. God gave you a bishop. God has given you deacons. God's given you teachers. God's given you Pauls. God's given you people. You got to find somebody and maybe submit yourself under that authority and say, hey, I'm a Timothy, and I'm looking for a Paul. And some of you guys kind of bucked at that. I don't need nobody. It's interesting to me because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh, yet lovingly submitted unto the authority of God the Father. And here's all, here's all I'm telling you. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for you. If it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. So we see these three pairs of partners, Paul and Timothy, bishops and deacons, and uh, the God, God the Father and God the Son. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I'd like you to notice, secondly this morning, we have these three sets of threes, these three threes in these first 11 verses. First we see the three pairs of partners. That went pretty fast. The next two won't go as fast, all right? 
So don't get excited. Think we're going to make it early to uh, hometown buffet. First, we see the three pairs of partners. Secondly, I'd like you to notice the Apostle Paul brings up three pivotal days. Notice there in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making requests with joy. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Notice verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel... I want you to notice these words. In fact, if you don't mind underlining or writing in your Bible, I want to encourage you to underline these words. From the first day. You see those words, first day? Underline those two words. First day. From the first day until now. The Apostle Paul begins by speaking to this church at Philippi and his mind goes back to that first day. And I won't take the time to take you there this morning, but at some point during this series, we'll go back to Acts chapter 16 and look at when the Apostle Paul first showed up in the city of Philippi and how he started this church of the Philippians, the church that he's now writing to. But Paul brings up in this letter three pivotal days, three very important days. Three important days in the life of the church of Philippi and in the life of every believer. He says, for your fellowship in the gospel, he says, from the first day until now. Now, I'd like you to keep your place there in the book of Philippians. That's our text for this morning. And go with me, if you would, to the book of 1 John. Towards the end of the New Testament, if you start at the very last book, the book of Revelation, and you head backwards, you have the book of Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John. When you get to 1 John, do me a favor and put a ribbon or a bookmark or something there because we're going to leave 1 John and we're going to come back to it throughout the sermon. So I'd like you to be able to get there quickly. 1 John, chapter number 5. 1 John, chapter number 5. The Apostle Paul says, not only are there these three pairs of partners, but he says there's these three Pivotal days, he says, from the first day, he says, for your fellowship in the gospel, from the first day until now. You say, what is that first day? Because these three days that the Apostle Paul brings up, they're pivotal days, not just for the church of Philippi, but for every church and for every believer. You say, what's the first day? The first day is the day of salvation. The first day is the day you got saved. Hey, it's a wonderful thing to know that you can know that you're saved. 1 John 5 and verse 13, you know the verses, but let's look at them together. 1 John 5, 13 says this, These things have I written unto you. Here we have John uh, referring to the, to, to the Bible. He says, These things have I written unto you. And he's referring to the Word of God. He's referring to the Scriptures. He's referring to the Bible. He says, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. Don't miss this. That ye may know that ye have eternal life. Isn't it good that you can know that you're saved? It's a wonderful thing that we can know that we are saved. It's a wonderful thing. Look, you know, the Bible says that God gave us, one of the reasons that God gave us the Bible, these things have I written unto you. He says that ye may know. Hey, it's not something you have to hope that uh, you make it there. It's not something that you have to wonder about. It's not something that you have to, uh, you're just kind of hoping that things work out that way. No, no, no. The Bible says that you can know for sure that you are on your way to heaven. The Bible says that you can have that assurance that you are saved. That first day is the day of salvation. Now let me say this, you may not remember the date that you got saved. You may not remember the day that you got saved, but you should remember getting saved. 
You should remember a time in which you believed on Christ and called upon Him for salvation. Keep your place there in 1 John. We're going to come back to it. Go with me to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, from the beginning of the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. When I was a, uh, a little kid in church, we would sing this song. And uh, we would all be sitting there, and we'd sing this song. It was on a Monday, somebody touched me. And if you, if you remember getting saved on a Monday, you'd stand up at that point. It was on a Monday, somebody touched me. It was on a Monday, somebody touched me. Must have been the hand of the Lord. And then we'd sing, it was on a Tuesday, somebody touched me. And we'd sing, it was on a Wednesday, somebody touched me. And if you remember the day that you got saved, whether Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, you'd get up at that point, and then we'd go through all those days, and at the end, for everybody, who didn't remember the day we would sing it was on a someday somebody touched me it was on a someday somebody touched me it was on a someday somebody touched me must have been the hand of the Lord hey I, I, I'll tell you this morning I don't remember the day I got saved I don't remember the date I got saved I don't remember whether it was a su- I'm pretty sure it was a Sunday I'm not sure if it was a Sunday or a Wednesday I know it was sometime after church I remember as a little boy going to my dad and telling him I didn't want to go to hell and he took a Bible and showed me that Jesus loved me and he died on the cross for my sins, and that even as a little boy, my sins had condemned me to hell, but Jesus could pay my sins and give me eternal life. I remember bowing my head and asking Jesus to save me. Hey, I'm thankful that there's that someday that you can know that you were saved. You ought to know you're saved this morning. Paul brings up that first day, that most important day, that day of salvation. You ought to know. Maybe you don't know the day. Some of you are blessed. You, 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 you know the date. You know the day. You know the anniversary. And praise the Lord for it. But even if you don't know, you ought to know that it was someday when I called upon Christ to save me. Let me say this. Maybe you're here this morning. You say, I don't remember getting saved. In fact, I don't really know what you're talking about, Pastor. I'm not sure. If I died today, I'm not sure that I'd go to heaven. Let me tell you something. If I died today right now, if I drop dead right now, hopefully that doesn't happen. That'd probably freak everybody out. <laughs> if I drop dead right now, I know for sure if I died today, I'd, I'd go straight to heaven. Amen. You say, that sounds kind of arrogant. Well, here's the thing. It has nothing to do with me. It's not because not I'm a pastor of a church, not because I live a good life, not because I do anything for, 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 for God or anyone else. It's because one day... Jesus washed my sins away. Because one day I called upon Christ in faith for uh, uh, salvation. And let me just say this. You're, you're here this morning. You say, well, I don't, if we sang that song right now, I couldn't get up on a Monday and I couldn't get up on a Tuesday and I couldn't get up on a Sunday. I'm not even sure that I'm saved. Hey, let me tell you something. If you don't remember getting saved, then today is the day. Today is the day that you can be saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, the Bible says this, For he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, notice the last part of the verse. It says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. You say, I'm not sure that I'm saved this morning. When should I get saved? Today. Well, maybe I'll do it next week. You don't know that you'll live to next week. Tomorrow's not promised to you. 
You know, the, one of the worst things that could happen to somebody is to come to a church like this where, where there's maybe a hundred people sitting in this room that could take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven and for you to walk out this door lost and on your way to hell. One of the worst things that could happen is for you to come to a church like this and have your wife be saved and have your children be saved and you just choose not to get saved and choose not to believe and choose not to call upon Christ for salvation and one day be eternally sent to hell when you could have been saved. Paul says, I remember the first day. Paul says, I I remember that first day, and I won't take the time to have you go there, but he says, I remember that first day when I went out to that prayer meeting uh, outside the city where prayer was wont to be made, and I met that very pushy business lady named Lydia, and she got saved. I remember that demon-possessed girl in Philippi that got saved and everybody got real upset because we cast the demon out of her. He said, I remember being in prison in the, in the jail there with that very famous Philippian jailer and the earthquake shook and the doors opened and he, he went to kill himself because he thought we'd all ran away. And I said, do thee no harm. And, and he said, what must I do to be saved? He said, I remember the first day as he begins this letter to this beloved church. He says, I remember the day you got saved. I remember the first day you came to Christ. And here's what I'm telling you. If you're here this morning, you're not saved. Don't leave here today without getting saved. See, I don't know how to do it. We'd love to show you. You talk to me. You talk to one of the staff guys here. We'll, we'll, we'll find somebody. We'll get a man to talk with a man. We'll get a lady to talk with a lady. We'll get a lady to talk with, with, with kids with the permission of their children, but let me t- with the permission of their parents. But let me tell you something. Don't leave here unsure that you're saved. The most important day for the Church of Philippi, the most important church day for, the, for any member of Verity Baptist Church, for the most important day of, any mem- uh, of anybody uh, uh, that, that, uh, that has lived is that day. You say, is it the day that I was born? No, it's the day that you were born again. Amen. Paul brings up these three pivotal days. He says the first day, what was it? The day of salvation. Why don't you notice... He brings up another day. Go back to, keep your place in 1 John. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. He brings up the first day. And then he says this in verse 6. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a new work in you will perform it, notice these words, until the day. Here's our second day. Until the day of Jesus Christ. He says, I remember the first day, but he said, I'm also looking forward to the last day. He says, until the day of Jesus Christ. You say, what's the day of Jesus Christ? Well, let me show you. You're there in Philippians. Go, go past Colossians into the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter number 2. Philippians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians chapter number 2. Paul brings up the first day. That's the day of salvation. Then he brings up the last day. The day of Jesus Christ. You say, what is that? Well, the day of Jesus Christ or the day of Christ is a reference to the rapture. This is the day that Jesus Christ resurrects all believers and raptures those that remain in our life. And we are caught up in the heavens to be with him for all of eternity. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verse 1. Second Thessalonians 2, 1, he says, Now we beseech you, brethren... Notice these words, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
People often refer to this as the second coming of Christ or the second advent of Christ. He says, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what happens at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him. When Jesus returns, we are gathered together with him. This is a reference to the rapture. Now, there is a false doctrine out there called the pre-tribulation rapture that says that we're all gathered secretly at some other point and Jesus returns at some other point uh, that are separate from each other. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the gathering together unto him. These are all, this is the same event. That ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by sword nor by letter as from us. Notice, as that the day of Christ is at hand. You say, what's the day of Christ? It's the day of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. And the Apostle Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You say, he, he brings up these three uh, pivotal days. He brings up the first day, that's the day of salvation. Then he brings up the last day. You say, what's the last day? The last day he's referring to here is the day of our resurrection, the day of our rapture. You say, why why is it the last day? It's not the last day that you'll exist. It's not the last day you'll spend eternity with Jesus Christ. But it is the last day in which God finishes the work that he begun in you. Notice again there in in, in Philippians chapter 1. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. See, the day of the rapture is when God finalizes his purchase of your salvation. If you're saved this morning, your spirit has been quickened, your soul has been redeemed, but you still live in this corruptible flesh. Your flesh has not yet been regenerated. Your flesh has not yet been renewed. But the Bible says that there's coming a day, the day of Christ, when this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. And at that point, God will have perfected us, will have completed us. We will be completely regenerated, body, soul, and spirit. The Apostle Paul brings up this day. And by the way, that's what we're preaching about tonight when we talk about the new man. We're talking about your spirit being quickened and this new man that's created in you at the day of salvation. But Paul says, not only was there the first day, but then he says, there's the last day, the day of Jesus Christ, the day when he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Go to 1 John, if you would. If you kept your place in 1 John, continue to keep your place there. And go to 1 John chapter number 3. The day that we meet and stand before Christ should be a day that motivates us. I brought this up recently in a sermon. Brother Oliver brought it up uh, as well in his Wednesday night sermon this last week. That one day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That day should be a motivation for us. We should all live our lives in anticipation of the judgment seat of Christ, that we will one day stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be judged for the things that were done in our bodies, whether good or bad. First John chapter 3 and verse 1, notice what John says. He says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. That's the first day. That's salvation. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. 
Behold, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, that's the last day, that's the day of Christ, we shall be like him, that's the perfecting, the resurrection of our bodies, for we shall see him as he is. Then he says this in verse 3, And every man that hath this hope, what hope? The hope of the resurrection, the hope of that last day, the hope of the day of Jesus Christ when he completes his work in us. He says, and every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. You say, why, why does somebody who has the hope of seeing Jesus Christ one day, why do they purify themselves? Here's why. Because you ought to be living your life and I should be living my life in anticipation for the day that we meet Christ. In anticipation for the day that we stand at the judgment seat of Christ. That we are judged by the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Revelation calls him the Amen. Jesus is the Amen. The word Amen is a word that it means the affirmative. So you may hear some of these men at our church say Amen every once in a while. And what that means is that they agree, that they are affirming what's being said. And I appreciate it when I preach and the men say Amen. But you know, more than having another man Amen me, I hope that one day the Amen says Amen. amen. To my life and to your life. Paul brings up these three pivotal days. He says these three very important days. He says the first day, the first day is the day of your salvation. Are you saved this morning? Then he brings up the last day, the day in which God fulfills the work. He completes the work that he has begun in you. Go back to Philippians if you would. Philippians chapter 1. Let me show you the third day. You say, Pastor, I've already read ahead while you were preaching, and I don't see a third day. You're smart. You say, I saw the first day, and I saw the day of Christ, and I've already read ahead. I don't see the third day. Well, it's there. You just missed it. It's sandwiched in between the first day and the last day. Notice Philippians chapter 1, verse 5. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day, notice these two words, until now. You say, what is, what, what, what's that now? That's today. See, you have the first day, the day of your salvation. Then you have the last day, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's the last day, but between the first day and the last day, you have today. You have now. You have the current day. See, the first day is the day that God began to work on you. The last day is the day that God finishes His work in you. You say, what's today the day that God's working on you? Amen. Go to Ephesians if you would. Just right before the book of Philippians, you have the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 2. See, we have the first day of salvation, the last day of the rapture, and we have the current day, today, the day that God is working on you. Anybody ever tell you you're a piece of work? Well, the truth is you are, and I am too. God's at work in me, and God's at work in you. Now, salvation is a gift. Salvation is not something you earn. You don't work for it. That's why some of you are like, well, I understand how somebody can know they're saved if I, if I have to live a good life and go to church and get baptized and repent of my sins and, and, and try to, how could I know if I'm saved? How could I know if I'm doing enough works? Well, the thing is, you can never know if you're doing enough works if that's what you're basing salvation on, but salvation is not of works. Right. 
Salvation is a gift. Jesus paid for it on the cross. He offers it to all of us freely. All you have to do is receive it, accept it, believe it, call upon him to be saved. Salvation is not of works. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 say this, For by grace are ye saved through faith. It doesn't say you're saved by your baptism. It doesn't say you're saved through your church attendance. It doesn't say you're saved because you live a good life. It doesn't say you're saved because you quit smoking or quit drinking or quit whatever you quit. He says, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that, the word of that there is referring to being saved. He says, and that, not of yourselves. You don't save yourselves. You say, why? It is the gift of God. And because it's a gift, not of works. You don't earn it. You don't work for it. Why? Lest any man should boast. Amen. And by the way, when people tell you, oh, I know I'm on my way to heaven. Well, what gives you that confidence you're on your way to heaven? Oh, because I, you know, I used to be a real bad person and I repented of that. You know what they're doing? They're boasting. They're bragging. The Bible says, not of works, lest any man should boast. But I want you to notice that though salvation is not of works, salvation is not of works, meaning you don't have to work to be saved. The day you got saved, God did begin a work in you. Notice, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, thus any man should boast. Notice verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in Him. See, we have the first day, the day of salvation, the day that God began His work in you. And we have the last day, the day of the rapture, the day that He will complete His work in you. But then we have the current day, today. Now! Today is the day that God is working in your life. Today is the day that God is working on you to make you more like His Son. Go to Romans if you would. If you go backwards... You have Ephesians, Galatians, 2, 1 Corinthians, Romans. If you go backwards from where you're at, Ephesians, Galatians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Romans chapter number 8. I'm reading a book right now by James Clear called Atomic Atomic Habits. In that book, he, he says this. I thought it was interesting. He says, we do not change by snapping our fingers and deciding to be someone entirely new. We change bit by bit, day by day, habit by habit. Look, you're not, you're, you're, you're not going to, maybe you're here this morning, you say, Pastor, you know, if you knew my circumstances, if you knew the way that my life was, if you knew how messed up I've messed things up, and my marriage is all messed up, and my children are all messed up, and all my relationships and my career, if you knew all of that, you'd, you'd understand why I don't have joy. And look, this book is for you, this series is for you. Joy is not found in your circumstances. Joy is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me tell you something, God wants to work in you. You don't snap a finger. You don't come to church one time and say, well, there, that should have solved it. No, it is a work that God does in you, a continuous work day by day, bit by bit. Romans 8, 29 says this, for when he did foreknow, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You say, what's the work that God began to do in me? He began to take you and to conform you to the image of his son. You're like a piece of stone, and God is is the stone carver, and he has a hammer and a chisel, and he's taking your image, and he's starting to chisel away at it, and remove the imperfections, and remove all of the excess, and remove all of the sin, and remove all of the world. You say, what's he trying to get me to be like? He's predestinated you to be conformed to the image of his son. 
Look, the first day was the day of salvation. The first day was the day that God gave you everlasting life. And the last day is the day of the rapture, the day that God gives your body uh, a resurrected, eternal body, and the day that the redemptive process is complete and you are fulfilled in Christ for all of eternity. But let me tell you something. Jesus did not just come to give you everlasting life and eternal life. Yes, He came to give you eternal life, but He also wants to give you an abundant life. He doesn't just want to give you life. He wants to make you, he wants to make you better at life. Amen. You say, how can my life get better? Your marriage will get better when you become more like Christ. Your parenting will get better when you become more like Christ. You'll be better at work and you'll be better at your job. You'll be better with your emotions and you'll be better with your depression. You'll be better with whatever habits you're dealing with and addictions you're dealing with when you become more like Christ. See, God is at work in you Amen. to make you like Christ. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God's working on you. Are you allowing him? God's working on you. Are you listening? God's working on we we do not change by snapping our fingers and deciding to be someone entirely new. We change bit by bit, day by day, habit by habit. The Apostle Paul brings up these three sets of threes. We first saw the three pairs of partners, Paul the mentor and Timothy the mentored, Bishop, the, bishops the overseers and deacons the servants, God the Father and God the Son. Then he brings up these three pivotal days. The first day, the first day is the day of your salvation. I hope you're saved this morning. And if you're not, I hope you'll allow today to be that first day. You'll allow us to show you from the Bible how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven. Because these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Then there's the last day. The day in which God will complete the work that he has begun in you. But then there's today. Now. The work that God's doing in you. The Bible says that we are co-laborers together with God. God wants to work with you to work on you. Will you let him? And I'd like you to notice thirdly this morning, not only do we see the three pairs of partners in the three pivotal days, but we see thirdly this morning the three prayer requests. If you go back to Philippians chapter 1 and look at verse 3, notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making requests with joy. By the way, in the Christian life, this is where it should all begin with prayer. By the way, this is how Church of Philippi started. He went out to where prayer was wont to be made. He says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, which he hath, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7. Even as it is meet, the word meet means suitable. Even it is, as it is meet for me to think this of you all. Notice what Paul says to this church at Philippi. He says, because I have you in my heart. The book of Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote. It's about joy and it's about Jesus and it's about the joy that we can be found in Jesus. But may I say this as well. The book of Philippians is really a love letter. Not a love letter like the silly things you wrote your girlfriend or your wife or whatever. This is a love letter among friends. 
As you read through the book of Philippians, you begin to see that Paul really loves these people. I mean, he says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. We just recently had a team leaders ministry uh, uh, meeting here at our church, and we've got team leaders and men and women that have chosen to help us here in the ministry and the care of our uh, church family. And uh, this is one of the things that I was trying to get across to them is that we have to love our people always in every prayer of mine for you making uh, for you all making requests with joy. Notice how Paul loved people. I believe one of the reasons that Paul was such an impactful person is because he loved people. Even as it is meet for me to think of you all, because I have you in my heart. And as much as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record. How Notice he says, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Then he says this. In verse 4 he says, in verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. Then in verse, uh, verses uh, 5 and 6, he talks about the fact that God's doing a work in them and that God is doing this work from the first day to the last day through today. Then he talks about the fact that he loves them. He says that I have you in my heart and how I greatly I long after you all. But then in verse 9, he goes back to this idea of prayer and he says, and this I pray. And we're about to see Paul's three prayer requests for these believers in Philippi. Just like we have a prayer sheet and we've got communication cards and you put in a prayer request and turn it in and we put it on our prayer sheet and pray for it on Wednesday night. Here we have the, the Apostle Paul's prayer requests. He said, he's telling the church of Philippi, he says, he, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy. And then in verse 9 he says, and this I pray. And he's about to give us his three prayer requests for the church at Philippi. And by the way, these three prayer requests coincide with the work that God is wanting to do in you and in me and in every believer. You say, what are they? This this really should be the prayer that we have for every believer. This should be the prayer you have for your children. This should be the prayer you have for your spiritual children. You say, what is it? I mean, notice, I mean, the Apostle Paul is a great man of God, arguably, other than Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest Christian who ever lived, for sure the greatest missionary, soul winner, church planter uh, that ever lived, the man that penned most of the New Testament. He's about to tell us how he prays for people that he loves. He says, the people that I greatly long for after you all, he says, I, I, I have you in my heart. He says, let me tell you how I pray for you. He says, and this I pray. Number one, he says, that your love may abound. He says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more. You know the Bible emphasizes two loves in our lives or two directions for our love in our lives. Go to the book of Matthew if you would. Keep your place in Philippians. We're coming back to it. Matthew chapter 22. should be fairly easy to find. It's the first book. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22. You know that God emphasizes two loves or two directions of love. You say, what are they? Matthew 22, verse 36. Matthew 22, verse 36. Somebody asked Jesus. Matthew 22, verse 36. They said, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? What's the big one, Jesus? What's the, the, if there's one I'm going to fulfill, what is it? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. With all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. He says, this is the first and great 
commandment. Look up here for a minute. God says he wants us to love. The Bible says he wants us to love God. That's a vertical love. We love God vertically. When, when the Bible talks about love or the direction of love, you say, how should my love go? It should go vertically towards God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Notice verse 39. The second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Look up here for a minute. God says, I want you to love vertically, but I also want you to love horizontally. He said, I want you to love vertically, love the Lord thy God, love towards God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But he said, I also want you to love vert- uh, horizontally. He said, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, saying all the law and the prophets. You'll fulfill, Jesus says, you'll fulfill every law, every commandment, everything that God wants you to do. You'll fulfill it if you can love in these two directions, love vertically and love horizontally. By the way, let me say this. You cannot love vertically. You cannot love God vertically if you are not loving your neighbor horizontally. I mean, read the book of 1 John. The Bible says, don't, don't say you love God while you, while you hate your brother. You cannot love vertically if you aren't loving horizontally. You can't love God if you're not loving your neighbor. And by the way, let me say this. You cannot properly love horizontally until you are properly loving vertically. You can't love God while you're not loving your neighbor, and you can't properly love your neighbor while you're not loving God. See, both of these connect. They coincide with each other. This is a problem that some, some people have in their marriages. People show up to church like this and say, I'm having problems with my marriage. We need counseling. And they're like, we don't understand why we're having so much problems in our marriage. We're trying so hard. We're trying so hard to love each other and we're trying so hard. The problem is that you've forgotten that you cannot love uh, 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 vertically till you, uh, 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 you cannot love horizontally till you've loved vertically. You, look, you, you say, how can I be the best parent for my kid? Love God with all your heart. No, no, I'll love my kids with all my heart. I'll make my kids, you know, my main emphasis. You will destroy your children. You'll make an idol out of your children and you will destroy them. You say, no, I'll be the best parent when I put my kids first. You will be the best parent when you put God first. You'll be the best husband. You'll be the best wife. You'll be the best everything in your life. See, you cannot love others properly until you first love God properly. And you cannot love God until you're loving others properly. So the Apostle Paul says, you know what I pray for? I pray that your love may abound more and more. He said, I pray that you learn to love God with all your heart and you to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, I want you to love. He says, my prayer request for you is that your love may abound. Now I want you to notice his second request. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. He says, and this I pray. He says that your love may abound yet more and more. And then he says this. And, he says more and more, then he says this, in knowledge. Paul says, you don't know what I pray for? I pray that your love may abound, and I pray that your knowledge may increase. I pray that your love may abound, and I pray that your knowledge may increase. Go, go to Second Peter, if you would, Second Peter chapter 3. We're almost done. We're going to be done in about 5 to 10 minutes, all right? We'll do this quickly. Second Peter chapter 3. Keep your place, if you kept your place there in 1 John and you just go backwards from 1 John, you got 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Once you get there, keep your finger right there in 2 Peter. We're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. 2 Peter chapter 3. Why don't you notice what the Bible says? The Bible says this, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
You cannot grow. You cannot mature. You cannot change without knowledge. Do you understand that? Your life cannot get better till you learn to get better at life. You say, my life's a mess. I can't get it better. Because you're doing the same things you've been doing. Look, doing the same things that got you into the mess you're in are not going to get you out. Nothing will change if nothing changes. Well, I'm just going to keep doing I'm just going to keep treating my, my wife the way I've been treating her. I'm going to keep treating my husband the way I've been treating her. I'm going to keep treating my children the way I've been treating her. I'm going to keep treating my in-laws the way I've been treating her. I don't understand why it's not working. You need more knowledge. Amen. You need to learn something. Paul says, you know what I pray for? I pray that your love would abound and that your knowledge would increase. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Keep your place right there in 2 Peter. Go back to Romans if you would. If you kept your place in Romans, Romans chapter number 12. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Keep your place in 2 Peter and in Romans. Romans chapter 12. You say, how, 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 do, how do we change? How do we get better? You learn. You learn. This is why we tell people you ought to read the Bible. And by the way, we tell people you should read the Bible, and then I tell people, and after you read the Bible, you should read books. You should read other books. Amen. You say, why? Because look, all, the only thing you know is what you know. And until you get somebody to teach you something different, you're not going to be able to change. Paul says, my hope is that you would grow knowledge. By what you say, well, why do you guys go to so many passages and you're telling us to go to this passage and that passage, underline this and take notes and this and that? You say, why? Because the only way for you to get better, the only way for you to get better is for you to increase in knowledge. Amen. I beseech you therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world. Don't miss it, but be ye transformed. You say, that's what I want. I want my life to be transformed. I want my marriage to be transformed. I want my relationship with my children and my career and my health to be transformed. Okay, here's how it goes. But be ye transformed. How do you do it? By the renewing of your mind. Something has to change up here. I don't want to go to that church. They're just going to try to brainwash me. Some of you need your brains to be washed. You've been thinking the wrong things. You've been thinking the wrong way. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul says, you know what I pray for? I pray that your love may abound and that your knowledge may increase because you cannot grow or mature or change without knowledge. But by the way, let me just say this. Keep your place right there in Romans. Go back to 2 Peter. There's a reason why, there's a divine order here. There's a reason why he brought up love first. Because he says we need love and grace before knowledge. That's why 2 Peter 3.18 says, but grow in grace first and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, why? Here's why. Because the Bible says that knowledge puffeth up. See, knowledge without love gets you into trouble. You know what knowledge without love does? Knowledge without love gets these independent fundamental Baptists, new fundamental Baptists, extreme fundamental Baptists, to talk about all these crazy things about reprobates and about, you know, uh, uh, you know all, all these crazy things. You talk about it, you say, well, pastors, don't you believe those things? I believe every crazy thing the Bible teaches. I believe it. I love it. But you know, I don't just stand up in front of a bunch of unsaved people or, or new Christians and just start talking about random things that they don't understand. Trying to show off how extreme I am. You know what your problem is? You have knowledge without grace. You have knowledge without love. 
You'd rather show off how extreme you are than care about the maturity of somebody that may not understand what you're talking about. He says, I pray that your love would abound and then your knowledge. Because knowledge without love, growing in knowledge without grace is dangerous. Because you get puffed up and arrogant. We're talking about all these extreme things. But yeah, but you're talking about it with people that they, they, they don't even understand what you're talking about. You're just offending them. This is one of the reasons why at Very Baptist Church, I have you guys turn to all the passages. You say, well, you preach some extreme things. But you know that I don't preach extreme things without showing you from the Bible where it comes? I don't just start rambling off all these extreme things without proving it from the Bible. Amen. You say, why? Because you don't need to take my word for it. You need to take God's word for it. He says that your knowledge would increase. Because knowledge puffeth up, he says, I want your love to abound. He says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I want you to notice, thirdly, his third prayer request here. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge, then he says this, and in all judgment. He says, my three prayer requests for you are this, that your love may abound, that your knowledge may increase, and that your judgment may expand. See, proper judgment would keep you from saying stupid, extreme things that may be correct and true in front of people that don't understand that. You may have no- having knowledge and having judgment are not the same thing. Having knowledge and having discernment are not the same thing. He says, I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. He says, that ye may approve things that are excellent. Look, the only way to get, uh, uh, to, to do this uh, is, to, the only way to approve things that are excellent is to do it with proper judgment or discernment. Notice, he says, that ye may. He says, this is what I want from you. That ye may be sincere. The word sincere means authentic. Real. On the inside. Then he says also, and without offense. What's offense? A sin. That's being holy on the outside. Look, you can be holy on the outside and not be real on the inside. It's called hypocrisy. And you can be, say, I love the Lord on the inside, but I'm just living a worldly life on the outside. That's, all, that's just called being worldly. Paul says, I want you to be sincere and without offense. Notice, notice how it brings it all together. To the day of Christ. He said, this is what I pray for you because this is what I want for you. To the day of Christ, to the day that God is done working in you, I pray these things, that your love may abound, that your knowledge may increase, that your judgment may expand, that you would love God and love your neighbor, that you would increase in knowledge because the only way to be transformed is through the renewing of your mind, but that you would add, no, that you would add judgment and discernment to that, that you may approve things that are excellent and make better decisions. Make wise decisions. Because you cannot get better at life. Your life cannot get better till you get better at life. You have to start making better decisions. You have to start making better choices. You say, well, how do I do that? When your knowledge increases. Well, what will motivate me to do that? When your love abounds. Romans 12, if you would, if you kept your place there. Notice the Apostle Paul is pretty much making the same arguments. Romans 12, 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy, holy, except unto God. That's without offense. Which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Notice, that ye may prove 
In Philippians 1.10, he said that ye may approve things that are excellent. In Romans 12.2, he says that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You know that God, Jesus, did not just come to give you eternal life. He also came to give you abundant life. You know that Jesus did not just come to give you life. He came to make you better at life. You know that God has a will for your life. He has a good and acceptable and perfect will for you. And he began that work. He began that work on the day you got saved. And he'll finish that work on the day of Christ. And today, he's at work in you. And like the Apostle Paul, we should all be praying that we would all abound in love, that we would all abound in knowledge, that we would all abound in judgment. Why? Because we could love more, we could know more, we could make better choices. And we could prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. See, you need love to keep the knowledge in check, and you need the knowledge to have better judgment, and you need the judgment to make better choices. And the truth is this, that nothing changes until something changes. Philippians 1, verse 11, we'll finish right here. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and the praise of God. When you allow God to work on you, when you allow God to work in you, when you allow to God to work with you, here's what will happen. You'll be filled with the fruits of righteousness, and your life will give glory and praise to God. And we're going to pick it up right here next week in our new study, Rejoice, Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. And we could see the expression of love that he had for these people. We see how much he loved them and how much he cared for them and how he so wanted God's work to be accomplished in them. And Lord, I think of this dear church, Verity Baptist Church. I hope these dear people know how much my wife and I love them, how we pray for them, how we think of them how we so want all of them to be saved and we all are looking forward to that day that God will accomplish his work, but we're very interested in today, this day. Lord, I pray for this church like the apostle prayed for the church in Philippi, that they would abound in love, that they would increase in knowledge, that they would gain judgment, that they would allow your perfect work to be done in their lives. We love you. We thank you for salvation, which is free. And we thank you for the work that you're doing in all of us. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.